0: This is Kim, and welcome to the 155th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, we are going to start our month on mental health, and I'm happy to be interviewing my friend, Dr. Terry Lynch. Terry qualified as a medical doctor in 1982. For the first 10 years after qualifying, he was an enthusiastic believer in the medical approach, including the medical approach to mental health care. Having worked as a family physician for 10 years, he became increasingly disillusioned with the medical approach to mental health. He set about educating himself into a more holistic and complete understanding of emotional and mental health. Terry completed an MA in psychotherapy and wrote a best selling book on mental health in 2001. For more than 20 years, Terry has provided a psychotherapy service working primarily, though not exclusively, with people diagnosed with various so-called mental illnesses. Terry's position in relation to mental health and so-called mental illness diagnoses is that this is a fundamentally misguided approach. The medical model is fundamentally misguided and diluted. A model that incorporates trauma, the subsequent wounding of self, an aspect of which is perceived compromisation of one's sense of power, autonomy, and potential options, choices, is a far more realistic understanding that the prevailing and seriously misguided medical model of so-called mental illness. Terry is also a coach and a fellow choice theory person. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
1: Thank you very much, Kim. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm delighted to be speaking with you. And as you said, we are old friends. We go back a long way.
0: We do. Mm. And my first question has to do with, I think I've read every book you've ever written, and I know my favorite, but I'm wondering if you have a favorite and why.
1: Mm. My first book was Beyond Project. That was the one that was the bestseller, and that was published in 2001. The British edition was published in 2004. I have great affection for that book for lots of reasons. It was really a critique of the medical approach to mental health. As you said, I was very content as a doctor. You mentioned 10 years, and that's right. That's what I have on my my bio. But actually, it's more like 14, 15 years. I worked in hospitals in Cork when I qualified. Loved the work. Then I worked as a GP for 10, 12 years. And I, I loved the work, and I, I was very, a very enthusiastic GP, and um, progressively I just began to, as you said, become disillusioned. And Beyond Prozac was the outpouring of that disillusionment, really. Because once I opened the doors to questioning, the floodgates opened, and more and more questions kept coming up within me, and the answers were shocking me and surprising me. The response of particularly the Irish people... I live in Ireland, as you know, and the book was a bestseller number three in the in the nonfiction list, uh, sales list within about two weeks, three weeks. And I was stunned by this and really didn't expect it because it was I thought it was kind of a specialized kind of a book in a way. So that book has a very special place in my heart. If I was to rewrite it now, everything that's in it is correct. There's nothing in there I would have to correct. You know, I predicted things like the major antidepressant drug dependence problem that exists now that I could see was unfolding 22, 23 years ago. But my medical colleagues were denying it all over the place. That got me connected with, for example, Peter, Peter Breakin, and Bill himself. Because what happened with with Beyond Prozac was Brian Lennon in Ireland, who you know well, sent a copy of Beyond Prozac to Bill Blasser. And Bill Blasser loved it. And that then created a connection that I ended up having with Bill for 10, 15, 20 years. And I wrote the foreword to one of his books. So that is I've great affection for that book. Probably my favorite, though, is Selfhood, a book I published in 2011, because it's very much about the wound itself, which I really think is a core issue in relation to emotional and mental health problems. So I, I think that is the most useful book for people, because it, it really is a self-help book that has lots of understandings in it, but also lots of ideas. The third book I wrote then, Depression Delusion, The Myth of the Brain Chemical Imbalance, I published that in 2015. People might describe that as quite an academic book, and in a way it is, because it needed to be. I wanted to really debunk, once and for all, this utter hoax and nonsense of brain chemical imbalance in relation to depression, bipolar, all of the psychiatric diagnoses. I knew for 20, 30 years, and I mentioned it as far back as 2001 in beyond Prozac, that there were no chemical imbalances. That book is quite academic, quite heady, I suppose. But yet again, I I have great affection for it for for different reasons. I also wrote a small book on prescribed drug dependence. That's quite a small book, and it's really only available on Kindle. That was important, too, because it was trying to address this major untapped problem, crisis of prescribed drug dependence.
0: I can tell you my favorite was depression delusion because I found so much evidence in that to debunk the chemical imbalance theory that is still being propagated from commercials direct to consumer advertising that we have in the United States and New Zealand that doesn't exist anywhere else. Mm -hmm. But people actually believe that they have something wrong with their brain and that the only way that they can be better is to take this medication for the rest of their lives. And as you wrote in Depression Delusion, there are people I know that will be listening to this if they've gotten this far who believe that I need this drug. If you take this drug away from me, I will be so depressed because I've tried to come off of it and I feel worse than I ever did. And my doctor says, see, I told you, you're going to need this drug forever. Can you talk a little bit about what that actually is? It's not depression. It's something else. Can you share that?
1: I certainly can. Where to start? Let's have truth at the center of all of this. It's a simple fact that there are no identified, scientifically identified and verified brain chemical imbalances in relation to any psychiatric diagnosis. Now, that's a simple fact. I'm not trying to alarm people. I'm stating a fact. It is outrageous what the medical profession have done. The medical profession have created this delusion of brain chemical imbalance and have used it to legitimize the prescribing of these substances. Because people naturally ask their doctors, the doctor's about to prescribe something. Well, what are you prescribing it for? What does this drug do? So the chemical imbalance lie became a really convenient and superficially impressive answer. You know, your serotonin is low, so this corrects your serotonin. So it's natural that the person on the other side of the desk is going, hmm, okay, this guy's a doctor or this woman is a doctor. They know what they're talking about. They have my interests at heart. They must know what they're talking about. Wow! It's that straightforward. Oh, that's great. And doctors often say that depression is just like diabetes. I've seen that so many times. In one, you take insulin to correct the chemical imbalance, and in the other, you take an antidepressant. And yet, if you break it down scientifically, the two could not be further apart. No human being in the modern era is diagnosed with diabetes without blood tests. Any doctor in America or anywhere else who practiced diagnosing diabetes just by talking to the person would be A, struck off for irresponsible practice, and B, would have a litany of legal cases on their back. Because that is so unscientific and so contrary to the scientific method, which basically means we think you may have diabetes, but we must confirm it. And we'll confirm it by doing some blood sugar tests. If the blood sugar tests are within the abnormal range, we diagnose diabetes. If they're not, then you don't have diabetes. What happens with depression, bipolar, etc.? Exactly the opposite. Nobody has a blood test. Nobody has a brain test for serotonin. But surely if there's an identified chemical imbalance, it should be identifiable scientifically. I mean, that's basic science. And the fact is that they can't be identified because they've never been established to exist. So it is a hoax. It is a lie, regardless of whether that sounds nice or not nice to the public. We need to be truthful. Now, the whole issue then of what happens when people stop the drug, two things happen. First of all, the substance that they're taking is being reduced in their system, so they're not gaining any effect from it. So you might ask me, well, well, what is the effect, Terry? What effect do these substances have? And I would answer, and I've seen this verified more recently scientifically, That one thing we can say for sure about these substances is that in a majority, I think, of people, they numb. So they numb emotional pain, and indeed, they can numb the body as well. So for example, 60% of people taking antidepressants experience some level of sexual dysfunction. That's more than half. But that sexual dysfunction, and I've heard many people say this to me, is often related to, I can't really feel my genitals. I don't really feel any sense of arousal. I've heard people say, even my nipples, I can't feel them. So these substances, we can say that they numb. So when somebody stops a numbing substance, what's likely to happen? A resurgence of that which has been numbed. Pain, distress, emotions, etc. Many people taking antidepressants say they can't cry. Because again, they're numbing. But then when they start coming off them, or they come off them, they often cry a great deal. And they often see that as, well, that's a step backwards, or the doctor might often misinterpret that as a step backwards. When In fact, it's often exactly what they need to do, to express their emotions. And of course, the second part of that, Kim, is this, and that is withdrawal. When people stop their so-called antidepressants, they are very likely, or quite likely at least, to go into drug withdrawal. The speed at which that happens depends on the half-life of the substance. So you take venlafaxine, for example, that's a very fast-acting substance. So people tend to go into withdrawal quite quickly within a matter of hours or days. Whereas with Prozac, it can take longer, but still the withdrawal can happen. I actually predicted this again and said it in 2001 and beyond Prozac, that the medical profession are chronically, as in all the time, or most of the time, a little bit less now so because there's been more focus on this issue. But for 25, 30 years, the medical profession en masse have been misinterpreting the apparent deterioration upon either reducing or stopping these antidepressant substances. They have misinterpreted that as a recurrence of the illness. They have said that to the person and the person has naturally bought that and agreed, oh, this proves that I need the drug. And they go back on it And often, as you said, for life. Now, I believe in free will. And people have that right to take medication, but they also have a right to informed consent. If people are not given the type of information I'm talking about here in relation to antidepressants, then they're not taking antidepressants or having given informed consent because they've not been properly informed. That is
0: so, so true. And I've seen it time and time again. I've done work with a woman named Angie, who is from the United States Army. And at one point, she experienced a lot of trauma, most of it sexual during her stint in the army, and she was receiving psychiatric care. And at one point, she was on nine different psych drugs. And she came off of those drugs on her own. It took her five years to come off of all of that medication and it's now it may be 11 or 12 years later and she's just starting to feel like herself again it took that long so what would you say to a person who is listening to this and is on psych meds and they think oh i gotta get off of those right away i'm not going to take them anymore what would you what would you say to that person
1: i would say take your time take your time I would say think about it, do some research. If you do feel you want to come off the drugs, what I would actually suggest is you consider reducing to begin with. I'm a great believer in small steps taken frequently rather than giant leaps. And certainly don't stop them quickly, particularly if you've been on them for more than three or four months, because you are likely to walk into some level of withdrawal. Some people can come off these substances without much trouble. Some people have horrendous trouble, like Angie. And I know so many people like that. This is a silent epidemic and it's growing all the time. And it's very peripheral because the medical profession have been doing their damnedest to deny the existence of this epidemic. So people are left on their own. They tend not to have proper medical support in this process. So what I would say to people is do your research research about antidepressants research about withdrawal symptoms and withdrawal problems get to know the terrain yourself first and then if it feels right for you contemplate reduction not stopping and reductions need to be in small increments and when I say small the general advice from people who know and unfortunately most psychiatrists and GPS are not in that category but the general advice is to reduce by increments of about five percent five to 7.5 percent per time and to do that about every two to four weeks. And also to consider the type of medication you're taking. As I said earlier, if you're taking an antidepressant with a short half-life, such as thilnefloxine, then it's often recommended that you switch to an antidepressant with a much longer half-life. They're easier to reduce with lesser chance of significant withdrawal symptoms. But I certainly wouldn't suggest stop them suddenly or panic, because the vast majority of people do get off these drugs. Some people have more trouble than others.
0: Yeah, I've I've definitely seen that. One of the things I want to talk about, because I think we may be preaching to the choir, the people who are listening to this, they already believe what we're talking about. But for those who are prone to maybe labeling this a conspiracy theory, as we have been exposed to so many of those recently, I think we need to look at How did this even come to be? And you make a good case for that in The Depression Delusion, when you talk about what was happening in psychiatry as it relates to the other medical professions. And then how did psychopharmacology get involved? And I know if we talk about psychopharmacology, we don't have to look very far and realize it's not conspiracy theory. All we have to do is look at the opioid epidemic psychopharmacology doesn't seem to have a very clear conscience about what they'll sell to the general public. So if you could talk about how how did this actually come to be?
1: Sure. For about 150 years, there's been an ongoing battle between mental health professionals who believe that mental health problems are fundamentally biological and those who feel that mental health problems are fundamentally psychological, emotional, etc. So that battle has been going on, and it's a battle for which there is a great prize. And that's what this has been all about. When Freud came in and was doing his thing, at that time, psychoanalysis and the psychodynamic approach dominated. The supporters of the biological theory were vanquished. Then, bit by bit, the biological group, if you like, got together more and more. And they culminated their efforts in the DSM-III, which was published, I think, in 1980 or 1982. I don't quite have the date in front of me. And that really was the turning point. Because in that DSM, everything was set out as a disorder. Whereas in the early editions of the DSM, the first edition particularly, everything was set out as a reaction. Mm. So there was depressive reaction. There was schizophrenia reaction. Manic depressive reaction. And actually, it is much more accurate to see those experiences and behaviors as a reaction to life, as a reaction to wounding. But the biologists wanted to get rid of this because they wanted to take center stage and take control. So the dsm three was the definitive one. I think it was 1980. That's when, for example, the criteria for depression came in. What people need to understand, people naturally assume that the DSM is a trustworthy document, highly scientific. It's nothing of the sort. There's no science in the DSM. And many leading psychiatrists have actually admitted this. This Here's what happened. The DSM vanquished the mental health professionals that believed that we should be looking at emotional and psychological causation, that that was the essence of emotional mental health problems rather than biology. That progressed and progressed. And it was really from then that the notion of, as I said, the notion of depression came in, because that was the first time that depression was set out, apparently clinically, but as a result of conversations among psychiatrists, that's how they decided on the criteria. I mean, I mentioned in my book, Beyond Prozac, why did they decide on four criteria for a diagnosis of depression? In my book, Beyond Pozac, I said, why did these psychiatrists decide on five criteria for a diagnosis of depression? Why not four? Why not six? I didn't know the answer, but I I did know the answer, as in, I knew it was they just decided on that figure. They picked it out of the air. But another psychiatrist in America in 2010, Daniel Carlat, in a book in which he was questioning his profession, he asked exactly the same questions. Why do they pick on five? Why not four and six? But the difference was, he actually asked Robert Spitzer, who was the lead psychiatrist of the DSM-3. And Robert Spitzer answered, well, we decided on, this is actually what he said. We decided on five because four didn't seem like enough, and six seemed like too much. That's how scientific the DSM is. People need to realize that. That DSM in 1980 was received with enormous enthusiasm by not only the medical profession, but by the legal profession, by wider society. That book was adopted as if it was, oh my God, we now have solid scientific evidence to work with. So the psychiatrists were taken by surprise by this. But obviously, they were going to gain big time for this. So they went along with it. And of course, then in comes the drug companies, because they saw their options. They saw their possibilities. That's really when the relationship between the drug companies and psychiatry and the medical profession exploded, because it was a mutually beneficial agreement, because it was a mutually beneficial arrangement. That was 1980. And then Prozac was created in 1987. So the wheels were already in motion. People like Nancy Andreasen, a very famous American psychiatrist who was honored by Bill Clinton. She, in her book, The Broken Brain, published in the mid-80s, was so enthusiastic. Her book, along with many other people at the time, many people like her, many psychiatrists, she was like an evangelist. She was losing how wonderful the now new information they had about chemical imbalances was, and that depression was caused either by a depletion of serotonin or an no evidence for this whatsoever. But it was an idea that was so seductive and so attractive to them, to psychiatry and to the pharmaceutical industry, that they brought into it hook, line and sinker. And they forgot that there were supposed to be scientists. And they lost sight completely of the scientific approach to explore this and to not accept something as a fact until it's been proven to be so. Now, if you were to ask me, well, is there any truth in that idea of serotonin, etc.? The answer is the smallest minuscule, but it, it's not applicable. And that is that the only evidence the drug companies ever really had was that when they took the brains of rats and blended them up in a blender into the most tiny little minuscule pieces, and they applied these drugs to them, these drugs seemed to interfere with the reuptake of serotonin in the cells. That's all, to interfere with the reuptake. And they extrapolated from that, oh my God, we now know what's going on. It was like, It would be like a little boy with the most primitive telescope you can imagine, looking up at the sky, seeing a few planets and saying, oh my God, I understand the whole universe now. That's how crazy that idea was. But you see, it was a money spinner and it was a persuader. And that is the only bit of evidence they've ever had. And it doesn't apply to human beings. And it doesn't apply to the living brain, which is entirely different to the blended into a million little pieces brain of a rat. Crazy stuff, really
0: right and is the brain of the rat the same as the brain of a human i mean there's so many questions you could ask yes. about yes. that particular thing i would love to talk to you more because there's so many other questions i want to talk to you about i want to talk to you about the selfhood and where you think that mental health problems the things that are so called mental illnesses what actually are they i hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be posting part two of this wonderful interview with Dr. Terry Lynch. You'll get to hear the answers to those questions then. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, Remember to subscribe.